You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Welcome back to the book of Psalms. If uh, you're a guest with us this morning, since this past January, every Sunday, the pastors have been preaching through uh, the book of Hebrews, which I have loved personally. It's been a rich study. Um, But this summer, we're going to hit pause on the book of Hebrews, and for our now fifth summer in a row, we are going to preach through the book of Psalms, and we're just going to pick up this summer where we left off last year, which means today we're in Psalm 62. And as a way to kind of help us reacclimate to the book of Psalms, I I wrote up a little thing for you. We sent it out Friday in the email, and we've tried to make that available for you this morning in that little half-page note. Uh, If you get a chance, check that out, read it later. But the short of it is this. The main thing to remember about the book of Psalms is that as helpful and as practical as the Psalms are for our lives and for our faith, the Psalms are not about us. It's the main thing. We need to remember that the first purpose of the Psalms is not to make us feel better. The first purpose of the Psalms is to show us that real faith in God is a focused hope on the promised Messiah. The book of Psalms wants to make clear for us that God will fulfill the promise that he made to David that a son of David, the Messiah, would reign as the king forever. That that is the main message of the book of Psalms overall, and Psalm 62 does not disappoint. Here in Psalm 62, which was written by King David, uh, this psalm is meant to show us what it looks like to have radical faith in God. Radical faith in God. Now, when I say this word radical, and I want you to hear unreasonable or illogical, But when I say radical, I mean robust and comprehensive. I mean full-throated, consistent faith, the kind of faith that we're all called to, the kind of faith that only makes sense because of who God is. This is important to remember. When we talk about faith and radical faith, faith is always a response to God and the truth of God. God and his truth is always the object of faith. So anytime we see faith that gets our attention, if we see faith and we say, wow, we we shouldn't get stuck on the faith, but instead we should track the faith back to what it says about God. The faith here, for example, in Psalm 62, the, the, the radical faith that we see in Psalm 62, it looks radical because the truth about God it holds on to is extraordinary. And this morning, I want to show you that. I want to show you in Psalm 62, three facts about radical faith. Three facts about radical faith in Psalm 62. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are. So if you'd like to jot down notes, you can jot these down. Here's the first. Radical faith, it, it resigns the effort to control. Number two, radical faith rightly assesses reality. Number three, radical faith relies on the promise 
Messiah. And we're going to look closer at each of these for the sermon. But before we begin, let me pray again and ask for God's help. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this moment now when your word is open before us. And together in this moment, we are asking, we are asking that by the power of your Holy Spirit, accomplish your will. You have, you have a will, a purpose for us and our being here this morning. We ask that you fulfill that. Magnify your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three facts about radical faith. Here's the first again. Radical faith resigns the effort to control. Look at verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then we see these words repeated again in verses 5 and 6. This, this time there's a little bit of a tweak here in verses 5 and 6. The main tweak in verses 5 and 6 is now, now David is saying these same words, but he's addressing his own soul. Look at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, he's looking, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Now these verses here, 1 and 2 and 5 and 6, this is the heart of the psalm. And there's one really important word here that's repeated four times. It's that word only or alone. And I, wanna, I want to make sure that you see this. So look down with me at the text for a second. Look at verse 1. Look at this word. For God alone. See, alone. Verse 2, he alone. Verse 5, for God alone. Verse 6, he alone. Now, in the original Hebrew, that's the exact same word. And in the word order is actually the first word of each sentence. And that's meant for emphasis. It's meant to, to get our attention. And you could can, can translate the word only or truly is another way to say it. So, truly for God, my soul wastes in silence. Truly God is my rock and my salvation. That's what David is saying. We should hear these statements in Psalm 62. In a, they're they're kind of they're earnest declarations that David is saying. The point here is that we should read these and we should get amped up, right? We should, we should see David in using this language as like basically taking the volume and just cranking it up. Okay, is that a, what happened? It's a bird. I had the thought during the music, I bet there's going to be a bird that flies in here. Uh, thank you, Joel. No animals were injured in the preaching of this sermon. So in... Psalm 62, so what's happening here is that in the language that David is using, it's, 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 a, it's, it's heightened language. It's, so, you know, imagine David's like grabbing the knob here. He's just like cranking the volume up for us. This, is, this should get our attention. And uh, we, we read this, we hear an urgency in what he's saying. And so then we would imagine with that kind of urgency 
that, that David must once again find himself in a difficult situation, which is exactly what we see in verses 3 and 4. David's enemies, verses 3 and 4, they are relentlessly attacking him. Constant battery, repeated blows, especially when he is most vulnerable. If he's leaning, if he's tottering at all, here come his enemies. Like they're, they're watching for that. They're watching for any weakness in David. Verse 4, truly, same word, truly they plan to bring him down at all costs. They're going to lie. They're going to appear to be one way, but really be another. That they are not playing by any kind of rules. David's enemies are going to do whatever it takes to topple him, to destroy him. And in that kind of situation, under that kind of pressure, hear again what David says in verse 4. Now, with that in mind, that kind of assault, that kind of pressure, verse 1 again, for God alone, truly for God, my soul waits in silence. This is radical faith that right away we know is uncommon because this is not how most people would respond. We know this because David says two things here that we can barely even begin to fathom. Look what he says. He waits, and he waits in silence. Waiting in silence. Are there any two things more difficult for us than that? Waiting in silence. Just think about this. Be honest with yourself for a second. We, we hate waiting, don't we? <laughs> so much of our lives is organized around how we can wait the least. I, I'll admit, I, I, um, I've, I felt this the last couple weeks. I've, I've planted some new grass seed in my front yard, and some of y'all know, like, I have a grass thing, okay? I, um, my backyard, perfect. <laughs> my, my front yard needs all kinds of work, and every year I, I try again to get it right, and it just doesn't seem to work out. But this year, I am, I am I'm, I'm going all in, right? I got a different kind of seed. I got some special ingredients. I have so far, and I plan to water it every single day. And knowing all of this, um, a week ago, I seeded my entire front yard with excitement. I knew this is going to be amazing. And so I went through, prepped it, seeded it. And then after I did that, I checked the details on the back of the seed bag just to see how long it would be before it would start to look like grass. And it said, 12 days. And when I read that, I audibly groaned. I was like, ah, no joke. And my neighbors were like, what is wrong with this guy? They saw this. I, 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 12 days? Like, I still got three days to go before I can see grass after all that work. And I feel it. I don't want to wait 12 days. And we all have things like that in our lives, right? Y'all, you've all got something that you're having to wait for, that you've had to wait for. We don't like waiting. Something else we don't like is silence. I don't know which is worse, waiting or silence. Waiting in silence. You probably heard this before, but Blaise Pascal, 
back in the 1600s, he said that humanity's biggest problem stems from man's inability to sit quietly in his room for an hour. And I read that from Pascal and think, we can't even be off our phones for an hour. Could you imagine sitting in a chair in silence for an hour? We don't like that kind of thing. We don't, we don't, we're not wired that way. We don't do that. Even in normal life, even in normal life, when things are going easy, we couldn't do that. Now, David here in this difficult situation, we can't even fathom it. Everything in it, if we're in David's shoes, everything in us would want to act, to be moving, to stay busy. We would want to take things into our own hands. And yet, The radical faith that we see here tells us, don't just do something, stand there. Truly for God, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and I'm not going to talk. I'm going to stop not just the words that come out of my mouth, I'm going to stop the words that race through my head. I'm not going to do anything, and I'm not going to say anything, because I don't have to. Why? Well, because my salvation comes from God, not me. My salvation comes from God. I am not my own Savior. God is my Savior. Now, this doesn't mean that God's action is always apart from ours. Oftentimes, God will work through us. We're not inactive necessarily. What this means is that at the heart level, we resign the effort to control. We stop trying to play God. That resignation of trying to be in control is the heart posture of radical faith. And it's what Jesus shows us and how he teaches us to pray. You know, Jesus teaches us. He says, we pray like this. How do we pray? You pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on this earth just as it is in heaven. That prayer begins with a surrendering of our attempt to control. Because if we're asking for God's kingdom, that's not our kingdom. If we're asking for God's will to come, we mean not our will. What we want is we want our will to be realigned, to be like God's will. God, do what seems good to you. That's what we want. Make my will be your will. That is radical faith. And we see that radical faith here in Psalm 62 in the waiting and in the silence. Radical faith resigns the effort to control. Number two, radical faith rightly assesses reality. We see this in verse 8. There's a change that happens here. In verses uh, 1 to 7, David has been making this declaration of faith. He's addressed his own soul. But now in verse 8, it's like David looks out and he starts to address others. It's almost like David's radical faith in God, because of who God is, it's almost like his radical faith wells up inside of him and just overflows in exhortation. Look what he says here in verse 8. He looks out and says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
And then in that light, we have verse 9. David here is just stating facts. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. The idea here in saying that word low estate and that word high estate is to say all humans, from the least to the greatest, from A to Z, humans and mankind is what he's saying. All of them, all humans are only a breath. They're a delusion. And he says this to set up an image, a really, a really important image at the end of verse 9, the second half there. He says, look at this, in the balances, they, mankind, go up. They are lighter than a breath. And when he says that word there, in the balances, he's talking about a balance scale. And I think, I think we can all picture what that is. You guys know what a balance scale is. It's what Lady Justice is holding. It's got like the, it's like a little pole and it's got the two plates on the side. And the way you, you try to track a measurement is you put the things and you see what, if it's heavy, it goes down. If it's light, it goes, if it's heavy, it goes down. If it's light, it goes up. You know what I'm talking about? That's the balance scale. That's what, that's, that's the image that he's, he's, he's given us here. David is saying that in that balance scale, when you put man, see the scale? When you put man on that scale, it goes up. The, the, the word here, when he says that man is lighter than a breath, another way to translate that is that man is a puff of wind. It's, it's an amazing image, right? And it, 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 we read this, and here, here's the thing. My guess is that for most of us, if we had such a scale, if we were able to like walk around our, you know, in our lives with a balanced scale, for how we see the world, for how we think about reality. If we could, if we had, if we took man or we took think, the approval of man, if we put man on this side of the scale, my guess is that for most of us, the scale wouldn't do like that. It would do like that. You see what I'm doing there? Think about that for a second. You get the image of a balanced scale in mind. Imagine you're holding one, you're walking around. You're carrying this balance scale around in your life. Everywhere you go, this is a question for you. Is man and the desire for the approval of man and the fear of man, is it lighter to you than a breath? Poof. Or does it carry the most weight? You got your scale? You thinking about it? Which is it? Well, you may think, okay, is it lighter or heavier compared to what? What's on the other side? That's important. What's on the other side? If we got a man over here, what's over here? And that's the question that I want you to think about. What, what could be over here? What in your scale, if you're walking around with this scale, what could be on this side of the scale that is heavier to you than man? Heavier to you than the opinions of man, than the threat of man? What could it be? Ed Welch is a counselor. Many of you know, he's written a book titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And the title pretty much sums up the book and the problem that we have. 
Uh, Welsh says that the fear of man is the root cause for many of our issues. Everything from peer pressure to people pleasing, same thing, to shame, to pride. It all goes back to a fear of man. And the truth is that all of us, too many times, we just care way too much about what other people think. We are afraid of man because we've made man. We've, we have made the opinion of man, the threat of man, the approval of man. We have made man bigger and more real to us than God. We have made man big and God small. Our balance scale in everyday life, our balance scale has man carrying all the weight. But radical faith says no to that. Be done with that. The radical faith that we see here, David says no, not anymore. Radical faith rightly assesses reality. Radical faith sees things clearly and knows that God is not small. God is more real than everything. God is bigger than anything. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, he upholds, directs, and disposes and governs all creatures and things from even the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom and power and justice and infinite goodness and mercy. And when we see that, when we see reality as it is, man just goes, radical faith rightly assesses reality. We don't fear man. And when we don't fear man, we also don't put our faith in man. We don't put our faith in man-made devices. Verse 10 continues to warn us here. But the topic changes from being about the fear of man to now being about faith in man. I want you to see this. Look at three words here in verse 10. These are three words that are all getting at the same idea. Extortion, robbery, and riches. You guys see those three words in verse 10? Now, riches, the last word mentioned there, is kind of the umbrella category for all three of these. Exhortation and robbery are man-made criminal ways to make riches increase. But riches is the category, and, and David tells us here three times, put no trust in them, set no vain hopes on them, set not your heart on them. Now this is important because David here is not, he's, he's not talking about greed. He's going deeper than that. He's actually aiming at the heart. And this is what he's saying. David is saying, stop thinking that having more money is going to solve your problems. I think if we're honest with ourselves for a minute, sometimes we can think that. It's easy for us to survey our lives and to see the parts to us that seem the toughest. And we see those hard parts and it's easy for us to think, it would all be easier if our bank account was bigger. It's subtle 
But that is trusting in riches. That is putting your faith in man. And look, I don't, I'm not ignoring, I don't, I don't want to ignore financial anxiety and, and financial stress. Like, I get it, okay? I'm in and out of that every time I have to think about our kids' tuition, okay? I get it, okay? I just want to challenge you that whatever it is in your life, like wherever things feel difficult for you, if we dared to look closer, would we find that we actually have faith in man? It's easy for us, even in the subtlest of ways, to set our hearts on man and on man-made devices and on manly means like money. But radical faith just says no. Radical faith knows that God is big. Radical faith knows that God is real. Is real. We, we don't fear man and we don't put our faith in man. But here's what we do. We understand that this is true all the time. We understand that our most fundamental need in every situation cannot be met by anything that is of man. Radical faith rightly assesses reality. Here's the third and final thing. Radical faith relies on the promised Messiah. Now, when I started earlier, I, I said that the main point of radical faith is not the faith itself, but it's God as the object of faith. And what I mean is David's faith says more about God than it does him. That's the point, right? doesn't mean that David's irrelevant. doesn't mean we ignore David. It just means that we're supposed to follow his experience through to the objective reality of who God is. For example, when we read verse 1, when David says, from him, God, comes my salvation, we should understand that to say that salvation comes from God. That's the truth about God. We're not just reading about David's personal religious experience here. We're reading truth about God that David knew firsthand. And because David knew it, it means we can know it. That, that's the beauty, that is the beauty of the book of Psalms. Psalm 62 is loaded with truth about God. We're going to see this the entire series. These Psalms are loaded with truth about God. And one way to state the truth could be just a simple subject predicate form. God is a rock. God is salvation. God is a fortress. All that's true. It could be stated that way. But instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in David's real life experience, which, is, which was as much a real life as any of us have, David puts it like this. He says, from God comes my salvation. He's my rock. My salvation, my fortress, my hope is from him. My rock, salvation, fortress, again in verse 6. My glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. God is a refuge for us. And we're supposed to read Psalm 62 and realize that the radical faith of David is not a statement of his greatness, but of God's greatness. And if David can know the greatness of God in this way and embrace it, so can we. We're supposed to think, when we read, when we read these, these verses, we're supposed to think all the mice here for David could be mice for me. And we want that. 
David wants us to think that, which is why in verse 8 he goes from saying my to saying us. God is a refuge for us. And so I just want to ask you, can you say that? Can you say that God is your refuge? Can you say of God what David says of God? And I don't mean like right now. I mean like in your real busy everyday kind of life. Is God your refuge? Is he your rock? That's the image of verse two. He's my rock. Is he your rock? Can you say that? I like the image of rock. I was talking about it earlier before the service. This rock is this, it's, you know, it means God's reliable. It means that God is the one ultimately who can be relied upon. God is the surest fact about reality that David himself is coming back to. And so do we have that? Can we say that? When things get slippery or, or crazy or overwhelming, what is your rock? Because we all have one, right? Where do you go to fill the ground, as it were? Where do you go? Well, for all of us, we want to go from reading what David says here to actually saying ourselves what David says. And that's how the psalm ends. God is a refuge for us, David says. He's talking about us, his readers. Remember verse 8, he's looking out, giving these exhortations. And then in verse 11, he commends to us this truth about God. Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. And that's just a little phrase right there. So it's a poetic way to say that what David is about to say is really important. This is a truth that has been revealed by God, that has been confirmed. This is really, really important. Here's what he says. Power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power and steadfast love. God's might and God's mercy, God's greatness and God's goodness. This truth about God is where David lands the psalm. And practically in this situation, this is how David knows that he will experience rescue from his enemies. He, he says that here in the last sentence. For you will render to man according to his work. <clears throat> Now that rendering here is the execution of God's power and steadfast love that David needs in this current situation. David's not saying here that God only gives man what he deserves, thank God. He doesn't mean here that God rewards man based upon his merit. David isn't talking about final reckoning here. He's talking about present justice for himself. Remember, he's got these enemies. They want to destroy him. They're coming for him. But David can wait and be silent because he knows his salvation comes from God. David knows that God in his steadfast love, in his faithfulness to his promise, in his grace to David, he knows that he will, David knows that God will render to David's enemies what they deserve. God says that power and steadfast love belong to him. And David's hope in that revelation of God is hope in the promised Messiah. 
The, the power and the mercy of God together means that God will overcome every obstacle that gets in the way of him revealing that promise to send the Messiah. Now, the promise of the Messiah King is not explicit here in Psalm 62, but it's alluded to in Psalm 61 just before it, and then again in Psalm 63. In Psalm 61, just before this Psalm, Psalm 61 verse 6, prolong the life of the King. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. And if we remember God's promise to David about the future Messiah King, then then we know what he's talking about here. We know what he's talking about when he says these these things about a a king. I asked my kids last night over dinner, I said, hey, based upon Psalm 61, who is the king who lives forever before God? Easy. It's Jesus. That's exactly right. It is. Jesus is the king who lives forever, the king who is enthroned forever. And that's who David is thinking about in Psalm 61. That's where he returns the focus at the end of Psalm 63. And it's in that same stream that here in Psalm 62, he recalls God's power and God's steadfast love. Radical faith in God is not in generic attributes, but it's in what God has revealed about himself. What God has revealed about himself in the old covenant through words and signs and shadows And now in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. In these last days, remember, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Radical faith in God relies upon the promised Messiah. And that's what we remember at this table. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember that Jesus is the true and final focus of God's revelation and redemption. Jesus has come to show us who God is, and he has come to bring us back to God through his death and resurrection. The bread at this table and the cup here symbolize the death of Jesus for us. And so when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are saying that Jesus alone is our hope. That's what we're saying. We're saying truly Jesus is my hope. Truly Jesus is my salvation. And so if that's true for you this morning, if you would say that, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've been united to him by faith, we invite you to eat and drink with us and give him thanks. We're gonna serve the bread first. Just hold it, I'll come back up. We'll eat it all together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.